everybody! Welcome to episode 45 of the MTG Grindcast, the spikiest podcast in all of Central North Carolina and Baden-Württemberg, Germany, with a special focus on the SCG Tour. We are your hosts, I'm Chris Castor-Apple, and with me, as always, is Collins Mullen. Hey, Collins. Hey, Chris. What's up? Not much. Uh, hanging out. Pretty super hype to start <laughs> watching the Pro Tour in uh, about a day and a half or so. so I am that's... also excited about that. A few of my friends are going to be competing. Uh, I will not be there, unfortunately, but definitely excited for the Pro Tour. We're back to standard, which is uh, which is interesting. Yeah, yeah, and this is a relatively mature standard that we're going into. I mean, Dominario's been out for a month. There have been some pretty major events uh, and a lot of format exploration that's been going on. Lots of iteration on strategies, so, you know, like, the PTs right after a set release are very interesting for brewing purposes, but this should be pretty cool for, you know, seeing what the next step is in a lot of these decks and, and where the format is shifting to. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So so what we're going to do today is to sort of, you know, this is our Pro Tour preview show, and we want to make sure to address standard and takes, you know, at least a little bit of time on draft and just sort of give you the... Give everybody the lay of the land and sort of the language and understanding of the format that we have going into it. And, you know, we've been we've been talking about sort of the way Standard has developed over the past several weeks. But sometimes we're not going to talk about every deck in Standard on every single episode. So sometimes things don't get mentioned. And so even if you haven't been listening at all over the past couple of weeks, haven't gotten a chance to pay any attention to Standard. I think that this should be a pretty good introduction to the format and just sort of going over the the major archetypes, the pillars of the format, and how people have been trying to beat each of those decks. And so then you can see what is the new technology that comes out at the Pro Tour, what are the things we haven't thought of yet, and you can be just as excited about those things as uh, we get. Yeah, for sure. So think of this as like your, you know, your Pro Tour preview show, kind of like the intro into what we're expecting to find. Yeah, yeah. Just sort of a, a primer or a primer or however you're supposed <laughs> to pronounce that. I don't think I ever knew that. Premiere? Uh, I don't know. Uh, that's not... Uh, <laughs> But before we get into it, I uh, just want to thank our new patrons, Jeffrey Benson and Andrew, who chose to keep his last name anonymous. Um, thank you guys so much for supporting the podcast. And anybody else who wants to support us, please feel free to head over to patreon.com slash mtggrindcast. Any supporter can come hang out in our Discord and chat about anything magic-related or not, tends to to be magic related but you know we could mix it up a little bit of course show is always free don't have to support financially if you don't want to we love the fact that you are listening but if you want to follow your heart so we <laughs> definitely appreciate any <laughs> any support you guys give us definitely for sure but yeah let's let's jump into it yeah totally do you want to kick us off with anything in particular uh you know the the most recent tournaments that we've seen are the Magic Online PTQ that happened a couple of days ago, and then the Standard Classic that happened over the weekend. Um, there have been some team events. Probably going to talk about you know GP Toronto a little bit, even though it's kind of old and it was a team event. But there was some interesting sideboarding stuff that that came out of it. But the the PTQ and the Standard Classic are the main recent tournaments that that we're going to be looking at. Yeah, right. 
Um, and it's it's definitely always like pretty good to focus on the the like the recent major events. And these aren't really major in the sense that like it's a Grand Prix or you know an Open or something like that. But it, it's kind of like these are the biggest events that we've had for Standard most recently. And you really want to take a look at the, the the latest of these tournaments to kind of get a feel for you know what's having success right now and what you should expect to be popular moving forward. Yeah, and, and one thing that we have emphasized on past episodes is just how quickly this standard changes and evolves. Yeah. Right. So, you know, the, the decks from the past couple of days are much, much more relevant than the decks from two weeks ago. Yeah. And that's yeah. definitely something to keep in mind. Yeah, and, and I anticipate that it will evolve moving into the Pro Tour as well. The The biggest thing that, or the biggest reason that you want to look at these big tournaments is because these are the tournaments that everybody else is also looking at, right? So these are the tournaments that are kind of like defining the archetypes that everybody else is going to be preparing for as well as probably playing. Right. So everybody's going to be at that level where they, they understand that these decks are important, these sideboarding strategies are happening, and, and when you get to the level of play that exists at the Pro Tour and the, the level of preparation that these teams put in, then it's, it's really a matter of figuring out what the levels are and which level you want to be at. And so that, that can be extremely difficult uh, <laughs> in a, a fast-moving format like this with, with the caliber of players that we're, we're looking at for this event. Yeah. But I love it. I think it's great. I think that the I think my favorite formats are the super fast moving standard formats where you really have to be on your toes, understand like, you know, the matchups and kind of like the rotating cycle and everything. So I think it's awesome. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. It's a super cool standard that I've enjoyed. I am not doing the greatest job of getting at that bleeding edge. I uh, I've played a bunch of different decks in leagues, in comp leagues, and I'm basically a three and two machine right now. <laughs> so excellent, excellent. It's like my my win rate is just a very steady sixty percent, which is a little bit frustrating. But at least like I feel like I'm getting a, a strong understanding of most of the matchups. But I'm having a hard time like getting to the point where I'm I'm breaking anything. So, mm-hmm. but you know. We'll, we'll go over what, what seems to exist right now, and, you know, maybe we'll come up with something, or maybe we'll just watch the Pro Tour and go from there. <laughs> For sure. Um, so, yeah, uh, I guess we should probably just start by going through the archetypes that we're looking at right now, kind of like in yeah. order of popularity from our experience. Starting off with kind of the the default deck coming out of the last Grand Prix that was standard, I guess, which was Red Black Aggro. Yeah, so this is... One of the, definitely the most popular deck in the format. I feel like every league, I've never played against it less than, fewer than t- two times in a league. And I usually play against, you know, three times is probably like the average number of times you play against it in league play. That's a lot. I mean, that's like 40%, you know. It's just it's heavy. Yeah. Yeah. And and this is one of the reasons why building your deck with Goblin Chain Whirler in mind is so important because even though it's hard to cast and can't fit in that many decks if it's in a deck that's just like taking up a, a lion's share of the metagame from what I have experienced but to to just kind of summarize what red black aggro is it is a little bit bigger than mono red aggro a lot of times the main deck the only black cards are a scrap heap scrounger and a couple of unlicensed disintegrations and this deck mostly popped up as a way to be a little bit bigger than other aggro decks and have some non-toughness-based removal. And so it's very powerful, very adaptable 
to what the metagame calls for out of an aggro deck. And its sideboarding plans can be very flexible. Its main calling card is the ability to change its size very easily during sideboarding, going up with Glorybringers and Chandras and having just a lot of removal. The main deck removal tends to be less face-based stuff. They lean more towards like Magnus Rays, Abrades, and Unlicensed Disintegrations rather than Shocks. And a lot of the main deck builds have slowed down a little bit, I think, in response to playing the Mirror a lot. So I've seen builds without Bomat Courier, with no one-toughness creatures because it's a liability against Goblin Chain Whirler. And so that's sort of its its spot in the metagame is kind of a heavier red aggro deck that has some card advantage, some Planeswalkers. It's, it's not as much... The earlier iterations were very artifact-based and had a lot of Karns as one of their either sideboard plans or, or main deck plans. But the Karns have kind of left the deck a little bit. The Hearts of Kirin have kind of left the deck a little bit. And it's mostly become a little bit cannibalized for fighting itself at this point, in my experience. So I don't know what, what your testing or what your play has, has shown, but that's kind of my initial like read on the deck at this moment. Yeah, I mean, the deck building has really adapted to the format. And the format consists, you know, a large part of a lot of this red-black aggro deck, right? So... We're seeing kind of like crazy things happening where people are taking out all of the one toughest creatures from their deck because of the prevalence of Chain Whirler and like making those adaptations that are that are generally, you know, like pretty strange if you'd like stepped into the format and be like, why doesn't this aggressive red deck run Bomat Courier? Oh, well, yeah. right. You know, the Goblin Chain the Whirlers are everywhere. So yeah, I mean, it's definitely moved in a, a pretty particular direction of deck building with a reactive philosophy essentially of we want to make sure that our cards line up well against what we're expecting to see uh and right you kind of like also went into the other big part of this deck which i think also just is a really important element of this format in general where i think that the like one of the defining characteristics of this format is the ability to change your plan post board right and red black is one of the decks that can do that really easily i think that like white black was kind of the first deck that we saw in this format that kind of utilized that plan of game one we're an aggressive beatdown strategy game two we can be a removal spell planeswalker heavy control deck right and the ability to do that i think in a fast moving standard format is really key because you're not entirely sure what you like want to face and just another element of standard in general, which I think is always true, is that you're always trying to kind of outsize your opponent. So if you can line up your, like, there there tends to be the rock, paper, scissors element of, like, the really big grindy decks compete up on the, the medium, like, beatdown decks. And the, like, really low-to-the-ground decks can, you know, beat up on, like, the really, really grindy decks. So if you can tune your deck so that it has the ability to be rock or paper or scissors post-board, you just get a, a huge advantage, right? And I think that that's probably where a lot of the success of the red-black aggro deck is coming from, is the ability to be like, okay, right, you know, for this matchup against blue-white control, I need to stay low to the ground, and I need to have, like, a few disruptive elements like duress and stuff like that, and I can do that. But against, you know, the mirror, I want to go over the top, I want to bring in a bunch of, like, grindy cards and everything... You know, so we, we have that flexibility. We have the ability to switch back and forth between doing what we want, right, with with the red-black mm -hmm. deck. Yeah, and, and I think one of the 
things that is hurting it a little bit right now is its own presence in the metagame. And so, you know, things like cutting Bomat Courier from your 75 entirely really, really hurt your matchup against a deck that's significantly bigger than you in something like Blue-White Control. And this is a matchup and a sort of like, I don't know, uh, arms race kind of situation that I'm particularly interested in going forward is how the red black decks and and blue white decks like what's going to happen in that particular head-to-head because these i think are the two most common decks in the format we haven't talked about blue white yet but we'll we'll definitely get to it next Mm -hmm. for sure yeah i mean that kind of like sums up my my thoughts on on red black it's it's the de facto best deck i think right now in standard due to both popularity and just kind of like the elements that we talked about. But the the other deck that has definitely been popping up more lately is Blue-White Control. And the history of Blue-White Control is pretty interesting. The first big standard event that was in this format was a team event, and uh, Blue-White Control was definitely like the breakout deck of that team tournament. And it showed up not only in the team event, but also in the Classic uh, that weekend for the Star City event. Which kind of like really, you know, showed that it was a, a pretty big powerhouse, right? The problem was that the Blue Light Control deck back then was probably leaning on the fact that nobody was prepared for just a bunch of settled wreckages and sweeper effects because it was like the new format, nobody knew what they were doing, and nobody like configured their deck in a particular way. So, you know, we were just like playing Fumigate and it just ended the game, and uh, and that was that, right? But the newer versions of Blue Light Control. So that blue eye control deck existed way back when, and then it kind of got crushed by people adapting to be able to beat Fumigate, which is pretty simple to do in deck construction. Yeah, and in particular, running vehicles and creatures that were cheap creatures that were difficult for blue white spot removal to interact with. So like white black was was particularly suited to beat up on those blue white builds and so that's that's kind of what happened to the initial iterations of the blue white deck. Yeah, right. Yeah, and, and we'll talk about white black. I'm sure in a minute, and kind of like the reasons why they were configured in a particular way. But yeah, so Blue Eye Control now exists kind of in a different form. Um, in the latest Grand Prix, the second place deckless for Blue Eye Control kind of had this interesting no win cons approach. It was playing no creatures and really no ways to win the game in the main deck, which was pretty interesting. But it did play four Teferis. The, the player who ended up doing well in that tournament with that deck figured out that you could just stock your deck full of interaction spells and like counter spells and removal spells and all sorts of stuff and then you just win the game with Teferi by ultimating the Teferi, destroying all of your opponent's permanents including all their lands and then you're never going to deck yourself because Teferi can just minus three on itself and put itself back into its library right (laughs) yeah Um, and that was like a a bunch of kind of jokey tweets about it like hey you know if you're ever gonna deck yourself you can do this and now it's the primary win condition of one of the best decks in the format so (laughs) right right yeah and generally the way that that plays out in paper is that people just concede once they don't have any permanence and you can demonstrate the hey look man i'm just gonna put this on top of my library and you know you're not gonna have any permanence because i'm gonna every time you play land i'm gonna draw a card and exile it and just you know that's how the emblem works Um, and you've got a shared clock so so it's in their interest to concede yeah but it it definitely made testing with the deck on magic online pretty interesting because people just wouldn't concede um, yeah, I uh, I honestly am one of those people. I have stopped scooping to blue white control online. Yeah. It's just I, 
I, I don't know if this is the right thing to do. This may be like more in a moral gray area, but I, I feel like clock management is a big part of the game. And if uh, you're not able to play your deck and finish within the time limit, then within the rules of Magic Online, your, your deck isn't capable of winning the game. I No, I, can't, I definitely can't really fault you for that. I mean, I've, I've definitely played to the clock uh, plenty of times on Magic Online, and I think that, you know, that's just an element of Magic Online, where, yeah, exactly, like, it's my time you're wasting too by taking too long when you're playing Magic, so I think that if you time out, then that's on you. You you need to play faster in order to, especially with the blue-white control deck on, on Magic Online, I think that you just need to play at faster than your opponent if you're expecting to win, which is doable, for sure. Yep. You know, so just if you're planning on testing with blue light control, the specifically the no win cons blue light control deck list on Magic Online, you have a couple of options. I think uh, you can just accept the fact that you're going to lose some amount of matches that you wouldn't lose in paper, and you still get testing in because you're still you know playing Magic. But your final record at the end of the day might be worse because you've timed out like X times right over the course of the day. And I think just like accepting that moving and going into it is fine if you're planning on just testing. Or just using Magic Online as a platform to test for a live tournament. Uh, and then your other option is that like, if you're actually just trying to win matches on Magic Online, you probably can either... Your philosophy is that Blue Light Control is the best deck, and it's what you want to be playing, and you're going to win most with it. And if you're doing that, then you just have to make sure that you're playing faster than your opponents, or probably just play something else. <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, the option C is like play one Gideon in the main deck, and that's not yeah, atrocious. Right, right. Yeah, that, that kind of like was the one way to win from what I saw in the like in the creatureless version or whatever, um, mm-hmm. and that's fine. It's probably not the worst, but still, it's it's gonna take you a while to win even with the one Gideon. Yeah, yeah, definitely. But anyways, we're we're getting a little derailed, I guess. A, a little derailed, <laughs> but it's definitely one of the more interesting like weird things about this format is the literal yeah. no win condition. Blue white control right. is is one of the most important decks in the format. Mm-hmm. It is interesting how limitations on Magic Online can affect, like, I think Standard runs into this most often, because Modern is just always going to be a fast format, because the card pool is so large, but uh, Standard is definitely one of those formats where, like, every once in a while there's, like, a matchup that takes forever, and I think that, like, in recent memory I can remember old mm, green-white devotion with, like... What was it called? Mastery of the Unseen. Mastery or of the Unseen. Yeah, life gain and and board. Yeah. Where Magic Online, yeah, you like both players would just have like two, three hundred life or something, and and it just like got super grindy, and you're making infinite tokens. I remember testing a lot of that deck on Magic Online and learning a lot of interesting things about. It doesn't really matter how many dudes I have or how many dudes you have. I'm going to be attacking with all of my creatures every turn because you have to set up blocks, and that takes. <laughs> way longer it takes than so much right, longer right click attack with all right <laughs> yeah so yep. you know i could have like 40 creatures and you could have 100 creatures and i'm just gonna attack with all of my dudes every turn um yeah even if because we're both at 200 life and it, you know it doesn't matter and i remember also like like some combo decks like project x um very very old deck it was basically unplayable online because you had to repeat actions manually so many times that your combo would take about eight minutes off of your clock so yeah yeah yeah. definitely definitely weird when the the magic online limitations muck up testing that way the the most recent deck that i've actually broken magic online a lot with recently is (laughs) the black white tokens anointed procession decks in standard sure 
Um, <laughs> and this is another deck that where both players just have a thousand life um, at, at particular points in the game or whatever, and both players have like 300 creatures. And I'm pretty sure that Magic Online can only support so many objects on the battlefield at a particular time. So once there are over, I don't know exactly what the number is, but like I guess it's probably like two to the power of some some number objects is like the maximum that it can handle, just because of the way that the software works. But but we would just like easily break that number when playing the mirrors of like this black white tokens list, and it would crash the match every time. <laughs> So there were like all these screenshots of like you know both players at like nine hundred and ninety nine life and then and like you know infinity tokens or whatever. I just think that that's like something that's hilarious and happens a lot. Anyways, I just find that funny. No, I mean I I don't think anybody you know a little off topic, but I don't think anybody <laughs> minds us talking about these parts of the game at all. Yeah, yeah. Um, fun fun stories to insert into. Uh, <laughs> but yeah, blue eye control. Uh, yeah, it seems like the blue eye control has a pretty good matchup against red black. I think it's very good, especially against current iterations of red black that aren't like no part of red black is like preying on the inherent weakness of seal away because everybody's stopped running um, heart of Kirin and they're running fewer planeswalkers to capitalize on like a settle the wreckage turn. You know, like the best that red black aggro can do a lot of the times, especially game one is get you to cast Settle the Wreckage, and then they just play a, uh, a Phoenix or something. And that's uh, that's not particularly scary to the blue-white deck. After board, it's a little different. They have more Chandras and maybe Karns. But yeah, I think just the way things are set up right now, the current iterations of red-black aggro are just bad against blue-white. Yeah, for sure. I think that, right, the creatureless blue-white control list, the thing that it has going for it the best is that you're you're beating up on the the red black deck because kind of none of the iterations of the red black deck can line up terribly well against what you're trying to do like you know they're they're kind of getting a little more inbred and they're taking out the bomat couriers which is traditionally a card that's really good against you and they're less focused on like you know curving out and killing you and they're more focused on the mirror and I think that that element of what's happening with the red black decks is making the blue white control matchup really good right now yeah i think that you can tune your red black deck to be able to beat the blue white control deck but you're losing a lot of equity in the other matchups which is a careful yeah. balance that you have to find right you could run bomat couriers glintsley siphoners karns and chandras in your main deck but right. then you're just never beating another goblin chain whirler deck right right exactly exactly so yeah so that's that's kind of like all interesting elements of the dynamic that exists between those two decks i think yeah, and I think that white-blue is probably, from what I'm seeing of its matchups and sort of, like, people's preferences and that sort of thing, I think that white-blue is going to be very well represented at this Pro Tour. It just has a great matchup against what is the best, what is the most popular deck, and it's a type of deck that leverages play skill, and yeah, I think if I were to show up at this Pro Tour, I would want to have a very good plan to beat not only blue-white control, but also, like, the the several very good sideboard plans out of blue-white control. Right, right. And and not to spend a million years on blue-white, um, but one thing that's really notable is those interesting sideboard plans. I have seen, you know, no creatures in the main deck, 
but creatures out of the sideboard are fair game. And so there's there's a lot of different plans. Um, I think the Baral plan out of the sideboard is really great if you're expecting a lot of other control decks. Making your negates cost one mana is incredibly powerful. Brad Nelson in the top four of GP Toronto had a great sideboard plan both for the mirror and for you know a couple other matchups where these cards would come in handy in uh, sideboarding in three of the White Knight and a bunch of History of Vanalia. Um, and that just gives your deck a, a, a way to pressure Planeswalkers, gives it a dimension of just an aggressive start in, in the mirror that makes a lot of the sideboard plans much more awkward. So, you know, this is a deck that also transforms a little bit too, despite being like a super locked in hard control deck game one, there's a bunch of routes you can go after board to, to adapt. So uh, be on the lookout for interesting new sideboard plans i think honestly i think that in this standard format if you don't have a sideboard plan that can fundamentally change the idea of what's going on in your deck you're not gonna have as much success i think that you need to be able to do some sort of maneuvering in the sideboarding process especially at the pro tour level where you know Mm -hmm. everybody else is doing it if you're just locked in on like this is my plan, I'm going to stick to it post-board, you know, we'll change a couple of cards post-board, but it'll be fine. Then anybody with a deck that can optimize post-board is just going to be optimized to your plan post-board, and that's not a position that, not a position that you want to find yourself in. Yeah, definitely not. This is definitely a format where I found myself sideboarding heavily much more often than not. There's a lot of, of matchups where I'm I'm switching out 9 or 10 or 11 cards. Yeah, for sure, for sure. And it, in, in a strange way, sometimes it can feel like a little, you know, repetitive where like in multiple different matchups you're like sideboarding out the same cards and bringing in the same cards or whatever. And that's like your, your post-board juke if, you know... It, it's kind of hard to call it a juke because I think that a lot of people anticipate it coming, but that's just kind of like an element of what's happening right now. Right. Well, and, and you know, out of something like blue-white, like, your opponent's going to be bringing in duresses and negates against you. Like, yeah. even if they know that your sideboard plan is to do something weird with creatures and Lyra Dawnbringer or something like that, they're not going to not bring in those cards against you. So you have to be prepared for that and do something else. You can't just give them a 100% two-mana counterspell against your deck. Right, right, exactly. Yeah, I think that the players that are going to have the most success this weekend are going to be the players who understand this concept and understand how best to approach it, right? So I think that they're going to not only know what their opponent's like general game plan is, but they're going to know what their opponent's game plan is in the matchup that they're playing post-board specifically, and I think that they're going to be able to level that in some way. Yeah, definitely. So, you know, keep an eye out for Brad Nelson's deck list, basically, is is the right. uh, t- takeaway from that. Yeah, yeah, for sure. He He's a smart cookie when it comes to that stuff. Yeah, yeah. In, a, in an established standard metagame, he, he usually finds the right level and, and comes up with something very interesting to, to be on it. Yeah, so I guess next up we've got Green Black Snake as another pretty popular archetype. Um, yeah, a couple of these 8-0'd the standard PTQ, which is um, impressive, definitely. Yeah, and, you know, <laughs> it feels like we're kind of beating the, the horse a little bit, but again, this is another deck that has the ability to kind of go big post-board with, like, Vraska's and a bunch of other pretty impactful spells. Uh, like, Nissa Vital that, Force like, has been a pretty yeah, huge one. That's the card I was thinking of. Yeah, so Nissa Vital Force, 
the Vraska's Lifecrafter's Bestiary, you know, and of course access to Doomfall and Duress. Like all these cards are just like really, really good at transitioning this general like, you know, creature beatdown strategy into something that can really, really grind with anything post-board. I'm a big fan of these decks. I think that the, the green-black constrictor decks are like pretty well set up against, like you have the, the capability to set your deck up pretty well against whatever you tend to be facing. You know, uh, I think that yeah. you can grind out red-black. I think that you can have an aggressive plan with disruption against blue-white. I just like this deck a lot. I think it has a lot of flexibility in terms of the plans that you can enact with it. Right, and it, it also just has the benefit of having some pretty busted interactions if they don't have the removal that lines up against your guys. If you manage to keep Winding Constrictor in play for two turns, like you're going to beat anything in the format because you're just doing something more powerful than they are. Snake doesn't stay in play very often, but when it does, you know, like you have those draws sometimes and your opponent doesn't have the ability to, to kill your guy and you just go off. So that's definitely, you get some percentage points from, from those games. Yeah. yeah, Green Black was definitely in a weird spot. Like after Birmingham, I was really scared because like those builds of Red Black were pretty scary for the deck. They had the ability to transform into a deck that was just like all removal, Chain Whirlers, Hearts of Kirin, and Planeswalkers. And uh, one thing that, that I think helps the deck in that sort of matchup is the the adoption of Shaper Sanctuary in the sideboard, which is really huge for those, you know, like one-for-one one removal and then get ahead with some card advantage engine. Um, that doesn't work if they draw a card every time you cast an abrade on their guy. Right, right. But... More than that, the the way that these red-black decks have updated makes them reasonably worse against the green-black deck, uh, enough that I, I think most people feel like it's a pretty even matchup instead of, like, green-black's worst matchup, which is kind of my feeling after uh, GP Birmingham. Uh, like, no Heart of Kirin makes it really difficult for them to pressure your life total early in the game through your board of, of big dumb ground guys. Uh, effectively, in game one... Almost their entire deck is bad against green black, except for Goblin Chain Whirler. So, and and that's one of the things that makes the deck that makes red black good is that happens in a lot of matchups where like oh, my deck is bad against your stuff, but Goblin Chain Whirler is good against all your stuff. Like it could never beat a tokens deck except that it has Goblin Chain Whirler that just beats tokens on its own. So tokens <laughs> doesn't exist. Yeah, yeah. So you know that's a a pretty weird part of the format is the power level of Goblin Chain Whirler. Um, but yeah, Green Black, I think, is is pretty well positioned right now. The one thing I don't like about it is that it's almost impossible to win a game one against the current iterations of Blue-White. And that's that's just something you got to live with if you're playing a deck like this. Yeah. And honestly, I think that that's fine. Uh, yeah. <laughs> you know, if, you're, if your win percentage against a, like a, a deck that's probably 10% of the meta is like 30% game one, but like 70% games two and three, I think that that's just a fine spot to be in. I think that you're you're going to end up being all right there. Yeah, and I mean, I don't know. I don't know what the post-board percentages are. I do know that any game that you start with a duress into a Glensleeve Siphoner just feels unlosable against that sort of deck. So there's definitely... And I don't know, like, like part of me just wants to go back to main deck duresses that I was doing a while ago. But, you know, these 8-0 decks aren't doing anything particularly special. They're still mid-rangey, uh, running a bunch of ravenous chupacabras. 
uh, running Adventurous Impulses, you know, maybe a couple Aethersphere Harvesters for the red-black matchup, although that card, uh, you know, has felt really awkward to me, but it's, I guess, a necessary evil. This is a pretty bad Aethersphere Harvester deck, honestly, and I'm not sure exactly why it is, but the card is pretty awkward. Yeah, like, deck's not just doing anything particularly special or revolutionary compared to older lists. We're not going back to Bristling Hydras, we're not running a bunch of Carnage Tyrants or anything like that. Just sort of this good old mid-rangey core with some adaptability in the sideboard. So, uh, still like it, still good. Uh, and it also has the benefit of being the best Walking Ballista deck in the format by a lot. And since Walking <laughs> Ballista is one of the best cards in the format, uh, you know, that helps it out for sure. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, Winding Constrictor is a silly magic card sometimes. <laughs> yeah. yeah, one like word of advice to anybody picking up this deck is that if you can save your Snake and your Ballista to cast them both on turn four, if you can do anything else reasonable in the early turns, like that's what you want to be doing. Or or on four mana. Like that's that's the main reason for Lenoir Elves in the deck is to get you to get that turn four to happen on turn three. And it's... Uh, it's really good. Right, right. Um, any other more thoughts on uh, Green Black Snake? Oh, many, many, but we probably should move on. <laughs> many. To the next deck. Yeah, this is this is Chris's uh, uh, pet deck, I think, from, from the last <laughs> couple of standards. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Definitely the standard deck that I've played the most of. You know, at me if you, if you want to talk Snake, but <laughs> probably me. we should talk about White Black at least a little bit. Yeah, yeah so White Black was the... The history of, of White Black in Standard is kind of the... It's the deck that popped up after week one, where blue-white control was everywhere. And it was just this aggro deck where all of the threats lined up really, really well against the the answers that blue-white control were trying to throw out. It was resilient to sweepers. It was resilient to the, you know, the Settle the Wreckage as well. Uh, it played a lot of Planeswalkers to kind of grind out the games. The matchup against blue-white was really good. And because of that, it had a really, really good second week of the format where it, you know, everybody got excited about this blue-white control deck, everybody played it, and then the people playing this white-black deck kind of was able to dominate that weekend. It suffered the following week against the red-black aggro decks. Um, The red-black aggro decks, I think, that were, they were just kind of doing a similar plan than the white-black decks. But the white-black decks were kind of, like, geared towards fighting these control decks and not geared for, towards fighting, like, Chandra's and Glorybringer's and Phoenix's and, and like, stuff like that. Mm-hmm. So so the white-black deck, I think, kind of, like, suffered against uh, kind of those things the, the following weeks. You know, they, they it was pretty bad against any green deck, you know, unless you found a sweeper post-board. So definitely some, like, some pros and cons, I think, of the white-black deck. I think that this deck primarily exists as a like a metacall deck if you expect to face against a lot of blue eye control then this is what you want to play so that's that's pretty good and i think that the more recent versions of white black have kind of tuned themselves to just be able to compete with a a wider field i've seen a lot of the white black decks transitioning more into like just a general mid-range strategy i've seen them cutting like toolcraft exemplar in favor of things like gantis and just like other grindy mid-range cards um, to c- try to compete better against, you know, just like a, a wider field of green, black snake and red, black aggro and stuff like that. Um, it's definitely aided history of Benalia being very, very powerful in the deck and ha- lining up well against several of the decks in the format. You know, one of those super adaptable cards that kind of no matter what the st- 
state the game is in, it, it can come down and do some really good things for you. So definitely a good history of Benalia deck. Yeah, yeah, agreed there for sure. And, you know, I definitely think that there is room to tune this deck into a, a you know, a powerhouse that can compete against everything. Um, I'm just not entirely sure what that build looks like right now, but keep an eye out for that at the Pro Tour as like a white-black aggro 2.0 kind of deal. Yeah. Yeah, and I mean, cutting those Toolcraft exemplars, like, that's tough, because that, that leads you to a place where, like, Heart of Kirin is much, much less good, but getting your Toolcraft exemplar killed by Goblin Chain Whirler is so brutal that the deck is definitely pulled in a couple of directions right now. But I've also heard people saying, you know, like after GP Birmingham, when people tr were trying to figure out how to beat Red Black, I had multiple people who played Red Black say, well, White Black can be pretty tough. And I think that that really, you know, it comes down to individual card choices and I'm sure in-game decision-making. Like this deck, this format is just so adaptable based on individual choices that... It's hard to say sometimes, especially with these mid-rangey decks, which one has the upper hand until you know exactly what list each person is playing. Right, right, for sure, for sure. So next on the list, we've got, and it seems a little bit strange to have this in its own category now after we talked about red-black, but I think mono-red is kind of a fundamentally different deck from the current red-black decks in the meta, even though they kind of evolved out of a similar background. Like, the first red-black decks we had in Standard were really just mono-red, but with Scrap Heap Scroungers in them. And they've, they've diverged pretty substantially from then, and the mono-red decks you're going to see most of the time are just going to be hyper-aggressive, very linear, haste-attacking uh, decks with burn. Like, these decks are mostly running all their lightning strikes before they run any abrades. They're running shocks over Magnus Braze. They're running all the Bomat Couriers. They're running. They're still running Chain Whirlers, but they're also running Oncrop Crouchers. Like, they're just trying to get you dead. And I think the best lists right now have the full four Hazarets in their four-drop slot. Because Hazaret lines up very well against every deck that's not blue-white right now. And this, this deck has kind of carved out... Uh, a spot in the meta now by going under all of these decks that are trying to kind of outsize each other and that can be a little tough since these are like mid-range decks trying to outsize each other but a lot of times if if these decks are going whether it's more planeswalker heavy or more like you know if, if decks are running like Gonti to try to beat other mid-range decks then mono red is exactly where you want to be to slide right under there and, you know, play some Bomat Couriers, play some Lightning Strikes, and just get people dead. So, right, so Mono Red kind of evolved from a similar, you know, place from the Red Black Aggro deck, but it just had a different philosophy, right? The Red Black mm -hmm. Aggro deck had the philosophy of, okay, we want to be able to, you know, have a transformative sideboard, we want to be able to grind, so we're going we're gonna to change our deck to make those things more, you know, adaptable. The Mono Red deck, the philosophy was... We still just want to stay really low to the ground and get them dead. Which I think is, like, you know, not a bad place to slot into the format right now because everybody else just kind of, like, is just getting a little more inbred and is, like, forgetting about the fact that this format has potential to be really fast and aggressive, particularly with Mono Red. So it'll be interesting to see, you know, if, you know, if any of the, like, the pro teams decide, okay, everybody's trying to go big and do all this crazy stuff and people are playing blue-white control. Let's, let's just, let's just get them dead. I, I just want to play some really, really small, uh, or like low on the curve creatures and turn them sideways. 
And honestly, that I I would not be surprised to see, you know, teams have that philosophy on you know on the pro tour. Yeah, definitely. I mean, this is a deck that has existed in standard for over a year now, and it's just very powerful. I mean, Bomat Courier against blue white control, especially game one, is just so lights out. And yeah, anybody who forgets about it or you know just doesn't doesn't prepare for it does so at at their own peril shout out to to josh egan who uh won the scg classic with this deck he's one of our our patrons and hangs out in the discord nice Um, nice so definitely cool to see that and he was he was definitely talking about how going low to the ground just seemed like a really good choice for the weekend a lot of people were just too big to keep up you know if people are just playing like like dorky blockers and card advantage stuff and planeswalkers playing on crop crasher is is really really punishing yeah definitely on yeah on crop crasher i've definitely been like a pretty big fan of uh, you know throughout its existence in the standard format and it was interesting to see a lot of people like trim down to like you know just a couple of copies of them and like even just like cutting them entirely especially mm-hmm. once they started transitioning towards these like really big like red black lists but yeah, very excited to just see three on Corrupt Crashers in a list. We're just trying to you're just trying to push damage, so Yep. It's pretty good there. Yeah. Yeah, Ankar Crasher is super successful in a list that just really cares about like sneaking in that damage on turn three or turn four, and and that's enough. You know, I've just had games against Blue White where yeah, they they end up getting all of my guys, and maybe they even solve the Bomat Courier problem. Right. But yeah, four shocks and four lightning strikes. You know, yep. <laughs> we're yeah, we're trying to get him dead. Yep, this game is going to go on for a very long time, and I have time to draw my burn and like respond to it to fairy with like seven points of burn or something like that. And, and right. it, that's certainly possible. Yeah, absolutely. And last, I guess you you have much more experience <laughs> with this than I do, but mono, uh, last mono mono green still in the format. Mono green, yeah. So I've always been a pretty big fan of mono green. It was the first deck that mm-hmm. I played kind of in week one of the format, just because, you know, Lanner War Elves was, it was the new card that everybody wanted to play, and I took a look at a bunch of mana bases and figured out that nobody was playing any, nearly enough green sources in their, like, green-white decks or whatever that they kind of, like, initially brewed with. So I was just like, okay, I want to play Lanner War Elves, it's busted, so let's make sure that we have enough green sources and just play mono green. (laughs) <laughs> um, and, uh, the, right, I mean, the general beatdown philosophy with this deck was pretty strong. I think that, you know, it kind of easily goes over the top in terms of, like, just, like, creature size of everything else in the format, which is a pretty nice place to be. It also has the, you know, capability to play a bunch of Heart of Kirins, some Sky Sovereigns, some, uh, Aether Sphere Harvesters, kind of, you know, you get to play a bunch of vehicles, which are really nice and can definitely get in in the air. So, you know, I, I really like this list. The problem is that it really, really suffers against blue-eye control. And I think that there are, like, a couple of ways of, you know, helping out with that. You can either splash black for Scrappy Scroungers and, like, post-board Duress and Doomfall and stuff like that. Or you can splash blue for some counter spells in, like, Spell Pierce or Negate. The splash is actually surprisingly easy to just kind of like fit in as long as it's just, you know, like a couple of sideboard cards here and there, and you can get a lot of equity out of that. But, you know, I I do like this deck a lot as just like a general approach to trying to go bigger than what our opponents are trying to do, for sure. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Like Galta in creature matchups 
is very, very good as long as your opponent hasn't been uh, sandbagging a ravenous chupacabra. Then it's it's not so yeah. good. And uh, Galta plus uh, Blossoming Defense is, is the Wombo combo, because if you ever play a Galta and they try to you know use four mana to kill it, and you stop yep. that from happening, the game typically just ends on the spot, so that's nice. Yeah, definitely. And I most of these mono green lists right now are running for Blossoming Defense, which I think is is just really necessary in this metagame. I and I, it's it's very powerful against the red black decks. It's it's really good at you know trying to win that mid range fight because the way that like green black gets ahead is by making big guys and then getting a key turn with something like Ravenous Jubicabra or Raska's Contempt to kill your biggest thing. If you can stop that from happening, then you may be able to just bash your guys into them or win with vehicles. Because uh, this is secretly like the best vehicle deck in Standard right now, which is weird given all of the, the possible vehicle decks in Standard. Right. But yeah, big big fan of Blossoming Defense, although it, it does, you know, having Blossoming Defenses also is not so good against blue-white, so... Yeah, right, right. Because they're Tough mainly spot. on like sweepers and stuff, not just spot removal. Yeah. Yeah, like sometimes you'll get a cast out or whatever, but a lot of times like it's just really hard to make your board not vulnerable to fumigate and settle the wreckage. So so it's tough. Yeah, definitely. So those are kind of like the, the main archetypes that are on our radar going into this weekend. Definitely expect to see a couple of new archetypes popping up, as mm-hmm. well as just like, you know, different takes on these archetypes that we've already talked about but this is kind of what i'm expecting to see moving forward for the pro tour yeah yeah that's definitely where we're at right now and then i'm sure the pro tour is gonna throw a bunch of wrenches into this although we've gotten quite good at discovering at least the major archetypes before the pro tour happens when when it's a couple of weeks into a format so uh, the surprises i think are mostly going to come in individual card choices and sideboarding plans and and sort of matchup evaluations and that sort of thing right right and i think that like a lot of the testing for the pro tour is going to involve understanding the way that these decks interact with each other and just making sure that they have appropriate plans to be able to enact in those matchups and figuring out you know which deck has the most flexible or just like across the board good plans um Mm -hmm. Uh, against particular matchups and whether or not that is blue eye control as like an adaptable deck that can adapt to beat anything post board or if it's just mono red you know we're gonna stay low to the ground and we're just anticipating people not being ready as ready for that Um, it'll be interesting to see what most of the teams come up with there yeah i don't know what you think are going to be the most popular decks going forward one of the concerns that i have is that i think blue white is going to be you know, extremely highly played at this tournament. And that's going to lead to a lot of very, very long game ones and and possible weirdness with draws uh, as the tournament goes on because the mirror is difficult to get done. And uh, even even with, like, highly competent players, especially the, the game one mirror with no history of Benalias or anything like that, that's just not, not to me, a fun a fun game to play. So, yeah, definitely a bit of, of weirdness going into the tournament that we'll see what happens. Uh, right, right, for sure. But yeah, I think that kind of covers most of my thoughts on Standard right now. General advice is I think that you want to make sure that you know your plans and you want to be able to be adaptable, you know, just like post-board in each matchup. I think that's just like a really 
important part of how standard functions and how it has functioned in you know current eras i guess of standard if you want to say because it's that's been a very common trait in the past couple of standard formats feels like so yeah um, and it's very important to understand what your opponent's post-board plans are likely to be against you you don't want to if you're playing the blue white mirror like you want to understand that your opponent may be on a history of Benalia sideboard plan and that's going to affect what what you want to be doing you can't leave yourself cold to that card so understanding where your opponent is going to be after boarding is just of utmost importance yeah definitely so we still got a few minutes uh do we want to at least give a little bit of a an intro to dominaria draft for anybody who hasn't gotten a chance to play too much of this yet yeah for sure I'll definitely let you take it away on this one because I'm sure that you you might have done more drafting than me. I uh, I've, I've been doing a lot of team sealeds, but that's I guess slightly different. <laughs> um, well, I, I think team sealed is closer to draft than it is to sealed, though. But, that's true. Yeah. That's true. Yeah. But yeah, so like the the main things that I've found about this format are, I mean, and, and I've just listed some of the primary characteristics of this format, and then I'll sort of aggregate them into like what they seem to have done to the format i'll start off by saying like this format is super fun i've I've enjoyed it a lot i've done a bunch of drafts and don't see myself stopping anytime soon but some of the individual things that stand out is that there really aren't any good aggressive two drops there's a lot of vanilla basically vanilla bears at two mana the good two drops are Things like the Skin Witch and Gitu Chronicler, which you really want to play, pay kicked for six mana to get some card advantage out of, but you can play them at two in a pinch, but then they're just good blockers at two. There's a lot of powerful, plentiful removal. Black at common has Eviscerate, four mana destroy a creature, has Vicious Offering, which is two mana, give a guy minus two, minus two, and kicker, sack a creature to give the guy minus five, minus five. Uh, it's also got Fungal Infection, gives a guy minus one, minus one, and gives you a Saproling. Uh, white has Gideon's Reproach and, and Blessed Light. Red has Shivan Fire and Fiery Intervention to like medium burn spells. Blue has Good Bounce and also has Deep Freeze, which turns a creature into a wall. Uh, and even Green has an okay fight spell. So there's just a lot of good removal at common. And there are really strong card advantage options. Uh, so, like, uh, Soul Salvage is quite good in this format. It's a double raise dead. Divination is strong. There's a lot of grindy cards at Uncommon that just get you way up on cards at, at a tempo cost. And so what these have all done is kind of made aggressive decks, at least traditional aggressive decks, hard to build. We don't have stuff like... Amonkit guys with with exert that attack basically as two mana unblockable three power guys like those don't exist all you have is just like pretty pretty anemic grizzly bears and that's not good enough with the number of two threes and one threes in this format so most of the time the games are going to go on pretty long and it's just a relatively grindy format where card drawing is good. Divination is an actively good card in this format. Evasion is really, really good because the ground does tend to get clogged up quite a bit. But even Evasion, you can't just rely on a couple of flyers to finish your opponent off in your aggressive deck 
because the removal is so good, you know, you deal seven or eight damage, and then you play your four mana three, two flyer. If none of your other creatures matter that much, if they have blockers for them, then they're going to find an eviscerate or a vicious offering or something to kill your guy before it kills them. So it's very important, even in the aggressive decks, to have some sort of grindy card advantage stuff. You know, things like Soul Salvage, the double raise dead can be very powerful. And yeah, so so the format is definitely based around card advantage and it's a blocking format more so than an attacking format. So archetypes that I've had a lot of success with, I'd probably draft green a little bit too much. One of the reasons for this is that it's very tempting to splash. You really, there's lots of cards that reward you for splashing. You know, there's the cycle of uncommon multicolored legends, most of which are quite powerful. And if you're in one of those colors and you see it, you you want to take most of these uncommon legends. But splashing is kind of difficult in this format. The only commons that allow you to splash are uh, Skittering Surveyor, which is the three mana one, two artifact creature that enters the battlefield and you search for a basic land and put it into your hand. And there's also Grow from the Ashes, the three mana rampant growth for an untapped basic and has kicker of two that lets you get an extra untapped basic. So green has twice as many mana fixing options as any other color does. Um, We won't talk about Navigator's Compass because this is not that in depth of a look into drafting. (laughs) That, That topic is too complicated. Um, sure, sure. But, you know, that's one of the things that's pulled me into green a lot is that I want to leave myself open to playing, like, pretty much whatever I open in packs two and three. And one of the best ways to do that is to pick up a Grow from the Ashes in addition to however many Skittering Surveyors I can take. Because that card might actually be the best common in the set, oddly enough. Or at least the most important one. Uh, it's just so difficult to splash, and splashing is so good that uh, Skittering Surveyor is is incredibly powerful. But really, uh, I think blue is the best color in the format, because blue kind of has the whole package in evasive creatures and card advantage and even a little bit of removal, because Divination is great. I've seen 3-0 decks with four Divinations in them in this format, if that tells you anything about the speed <laughs> and uh, yeah. uh, importance of card advantage. Right. And the the black one as well, uh, dark bargain. Yes, yeah, dark bargain. I've seen I've seen people just throw as many dark bargains and divinations into their grindy decks as they possibly can. Yeah, um, and dark bargain even just, costs you two life, and you're just happy to yeah. to pay it. I get to look at three cards and get two of them. That sounds great to me. It is. Yeah, it's so good. Uh, and I've I've had a, an unusual number of games come down to decking. On another podcast that I listened to, the Lords of Limited podcast, they they were talking about something that that reflects my experience pretty accurately. The Mill Giant, the 4-mana 3-3, I think it's a Homerid Explorer that mills a player for four cards when it comes into play. A lot of times you have to target your opponent with that because either you are concerned about decking if the game goes long, or you only have so many actual win conditions in your deck because most of your deck is removal and blockers and card advantage and if you toss your you know your five six flyer into your graveyard you might not actually have a way to kill your opponent so definitely a very grindy format i've had games where like i wasn't sure if i should cast my wind grace accolade the five mana three two that gains you three life because it was going to mill me for three cards and that might if they had a removal spell for it i might not be able to kill my opponent before i deck myself so the the games are pretty grindy, and 
one of the results of that is that I, I, I kind of categorize formats into a, a couple different like philosophies. And so there are there are jund limited formats. Sure. Where where players trade cards and run out of resources and then whoever like has slightly more powerful cards or draws fewer lands or whatever ends up winning the game. I I tend to not like those formats as much because a lot of it comes down to kind of the order that you draw your cards in and and who's drawing enough action and that sort of thing. This is not one of those formats. If both players have a good deck, that means both players are going to have a lot of resources throughout the whole game. And that's going to reward good decision-making on every turn because you have several options. It's not just, well, I've got one spell in my hand that I drew this turn, so I'm going to play it. Most of the time, there's, you know, a couple of different lines that you can take. And this is one of those formats where, like, it's really important to spend your removal on the correct creature. And if you... If you are likely to draw a blocker for something that's dealing you damage, you really don't want to spend your eviscerate on that thing unless you really have to, because they're gonna play like a slime foot the stowaway or something else later on that you really wish you had your eviscerate for. So that's that's one of the things to watch for when you're watching games in the Pro Tour is I think you're going to see a lot of players be very hesitant to use their removal, and I think it's going to surprise a lot of viewers, and they're going to ask, why Why are they just taking damage? Why aren't they killing this thing that's this 2-2 flyer that's attacking them? Yeah. And it's going to be because they're, they're sandbagging that removal for the much more important threats in their opponent's deck, when their life total matters a lot less in this format than it mattered in things like Triple Ixalan or Triple Amonkhet or something like that. So definitely watch for those very intricate play patterns, and I think paying close attention to the choices that these pros make is going to reward you in your your own gameplay in this format and other limited formats going forward. Yeah, I think those are all really good, really good points that you brought up, for sure. I think that we covered uh, a lot of good stuff. Yeah, I, I think that should mostly... Do you have any more thoughts on uh, on Draft? So, I mean, those are those are really just the basics. There's a lot more, you know, there's there's so much to learn about this format and I, I keep, you know, making plays and making picks and then going back and thinking, oh man, that was definitely not the right thing to do. So there's there's a huge depth to it, but those are definitely things that you want to look out for while you're while you're watching the PT and, and definitely will like I think I'm gonna be taking notes on this one and and coming up with stuff uh, to talk about on our next episode. So, yeah, it should be it should be an interesting pro tour. I think that watching it from the perspective of like having a better understanding of kind of like the standard archetypes and like what everybody's plan is post board is going to be pretty important to really get a good idea of what's happening. So I'm glad that we I'm glad that we went over those for for the listeners. Yeah, yeah, I really hope this is helpful because this is you know what what we've learned over the past couple of weeks and it's it's really fun to share it with you guys so so hopefully it, it is some sort of benefit going <laughs> hopefully <forward>. it helps <laughs> yeah for sure <laughs> yeah um but you know as always thank you guys so much for listening we really really appreciate um you guys are the best uh if you want to check us out online you can find us at mtggrindcast.com you can also find us on twitter uh, I'm tweeting from at MTG underscore Grindcast. You can also find Collins on Twitter. At Collins Mullen. Uh, if you want to support us on Patreon, you know, that would be amazing as well. Patreon.com slash MTG Grindcast. 
And uh, Collins, of course, also provides coaching services. Yep. And you can find information about that through our podcast website. Uh, There'll just be a coaching tab there for you to find. Thanks again for listening. Uh, looking forward to watching the Pro Tour. Uh, any Anybody who wants to come hang out in our Discord while watching the PT, I think that will be fun. Chris and I will be there. It'll be great. Yep, definitely. It's a good time. Definitely. I'll pop some popcorn and we'll have a little party. <laughs> Sweet. Excellent. <laughs> Alright guys. Oh you can you can you can do the have a great week and then we'll we'll get out of here. Uh yeah, thanks everybody for listening and I hope everybody has an excellent week. So excellent. See you later. Bye.